Well, as Todd said, we greet you, of course, on this first Lord's Day of the year, looking forward to kicking off a new year and all that we're going to be doing, seeing in God's Word and looking to and growing from. So, of course, you know we've been in the study of Luke's Gospel. We return there this morning, so take your Bibles and return with me to our study of Luke. We are in chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, what a thrill to be jumping back into the study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much is ahead in this narrative. As we've studied Luke's gospel and followed the life and times of our Lord, we simply cannot help but notice the central thread that weaves its way into almost every encounter that Luke writes about. That scarlet thread is this, that in the heart of every human being, there is a massive obstacle which keeps us from a right relationship with our Creator. In every human being, at the very core of who they are, there is a massive barrier to seeing and knowing our Creator. What is that barrier? What is that obstacle? It is this, that by nature, there is in every one of us an unbridled passion to be preeminent in all of life. We have an unbridled passion to be exalted, to be preeminent. Instead of worshiping and honoring our creator who alone is worthy of worship, we want to be honored. We want to be honored by all and we want to be honored above all in everything. Because we are fallen and therefore corrupt by nature, we pursue as a course of life our own uplifting in the world, our own exaltation. For example, we want to prove we're completely autonomous. So we fight and kick against authority structures and ultimately against divine authority so that others will admire us for being our own person and making our own way and answering to no one but ourselves. We also want to indulge every desire of our hearts without consequences. We believe it is our right to experience life to the fullest, to our own satisfaction, without experiencing any of the responsibility. We inherently run from responsibility. And on the other side of that, because we pursue things that are dangerous and destructive and we do pursue things at the expense of life to feed our own desires, we then have to hide things. We have to hide anything that could expose that fact that weakness that we love, our, our pet sins, we have to hide those realities. So we become phonies. And we also do everything to ignore and deny and suppress the relentless feelings of guilt that are there, the restlessness that is in the conscience of every human being, the fears that plague our inner life every day. And then on top of all that, we, we exhaust ourselves crafting a public image that makes uh, for, for hiding the ugly reality. We put a mask on to cover the ugly reality that is there. And if exposed, whenever we're exposed, as sinners, we, we have sophisticated ways of excusing and blame shifting and minimizing and really outright trying to deceive others so we preserve a false persona and we keep from being held accountable. Whenever we're confronted with truth from God, we flee to, to some well-worn arguments against his existence. We redefine him so that we can redefine sin and we add more self-congratulating conduct to our moral scorecard when we do so. Just deny him and <laughs> redefine sin and our moral uh, scorecard goes up in our minds. So it's no surprise then that with every encounter with Jesus while he was preaching the good news of the kingdom, we're not surprised to see this barrier come up again and again right to the surface. 
In fact, in some ways, that's what evangelism is all about. We proclaim the truth and we live the truth in the name of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that the obstacle, the form of the obstacle, the version of the obstacle of a person's heart will be made known by the mercy of God. That's really the issue in evangelism, that we can get to that obstacle. And so that's what we do. We want it to be made known by God's mercy, and having sown the seed, then we wait. We wait for that seed to take root in good soil should the Lord in his mercy prepare the soil in that way. And in our waiting, we're waiting for, for life's inevitable emptiness and hopelessness to soften the soil of the heart. We know that will happen. Sometimes when you're witnessing to someone and you've gained no traction and off they go into a season of life where they're not around you much and don't want to be around you much because you've been such a testimony. Look, our next prayer is, Lord, whomever they encounter, wherever they go, bring about the circumstances that soften Bring those things about, because I can't bring that about, but I know that the emptiness of life and the hopelessness of life can be made known to a person in the mercy of God if they go out and try to live the way that humans try to live. In the end, it slips through their fingers, this fulfillment they so desperately seek. And so we wait. We sow the seed and we wait for the inevitable emptiness and hopelessness to convict the sinner of their need by the power of the Holy Spirit. But until that person gets desperate about their need and until they truly want the answer, no matter what it costs them, until that's occurring in the heart, they will go on being empty and without hope. That is a foregone reality. And that is precisely what we see happening in this next encounter in the ministry of Jesus. You recall from our last portion of study, verse 17 of the 18th chapter, when Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And you remember that he had been speaking to the crowd about the reality of coming to God dependently, not autonomously, coming to God humbly, not proudly. That's the only way you will ever see the kingdom of God as the fruit of your reward. That's the only way you'll ever get in, is to be utterly dependent upon the resources of God, his divine work, and to be utterly humble before it. We, we saw the obstacle that he was dealing with. It was the obstacle of self-justification. It was the pride of justifying oneself. Well, in this next interchange, Jesus exposes a different obstacle. He, he exposes the obstacle of coveting the things of the world, the comforts of the world, even in this particular case, the wealth of the world, as if that is resource enough to fulfill. That is what happens to be in the heart of this one Jesus deals with here. And this account is a great example of how to, how to get to the underlying barriers. How does Jesus do it? How does he keep people uh, in the conversation having to address that obstacle? How does he help them see that they have not yet given their whole heart? That there's a cost they're not willing to pay? A line they just will not cross? This is a great example of how to do that. This encounter as well is a clear lesson about not being naive when someone makes a profession of faith or a profession of interest. We are not to be naive about such things when someone expresses that they are interested in the truth. We're not to be duped by what appears to be sincere interest. The issue here is the cost of being a follower of Christ, which as you know, we have seen over and over again in this gospel. Regardless of how someone comes claiming to want answers, here is the question, have they considered what Christ says? Have they considered the cost of coming into the kingdom, the cost of following Christ? I'm gonna read from verse 18 to verse 30. Let's see how things unfold. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18, a ruler questioned him. 
saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's stop right there. A seeker, so to speak, comes with interest to Christ. We'll call him, if you're taking notes or wanting to hang your thoughts on something, we'll call him the anxious seeker. He's the anxious seeker. The text says that a ruler questioned him. He is clearly, and even the parallel texts in the other gospels, Matthew and Mark, indicate this. He's some sort of an official and no doubt uh, tasked with overseeing the synagogue, the life of the synagogue. He is known and important. Matthew supplies some of that detail um, about this man. And that he was, he was uh, right in the center or the thick of Jewish life, Israel's life, the worship life of Israel. Mark would add a detail that Jesus was just going out on the road to head to his next portion of the journey when this man ran to him to inquire of him. But he's an anxious seeker, as you can tell from the text. It says that he came to Jesus saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit inter eternal life? Seems simple enough. And in fact, it appears to be the kind of question that every Christian might dream of getting when you meet a pagan or spend time with them. Some passerby sees you dropping off your kids at the local Christian school and they come up to you and say, hey, I noticed that you have kids in the Christian school. Can you tell me how I can have eternal life? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And you open up some fire hose of the gospel and drown them with it. It's, it's just an amazing moment. Some, sometimes it happens that way, or so it seems. And you're ecstatic about it. And you gave the gospel, and the person didn't seem to flinch, but remained excited. And they, they promised to start coming to your church, or your Bible study, or your ministry. And they could find a Bible, they ask you where they can get one. Overall, they're very excited about what you told them. And later, you're enthusiastically telling a friend what happened. And in your confidence and anticipation and enthusiasm, you make the statement, they're the real deal. They're the real deal. Why are we so prone to early confidence like this? Even before we have gotten to the heart issue. Why is that? Those kinds of scenarios are all over scripture. They're all over church history. And, and we already know by our own personal experience, let alone church history or the gospels or the scriptures, that some of those encounters go nowhere. 
absolutely nowhere. Why are we so prone to get to levels of confidence before the hard work is done, before the heart is seen, before the truth exposes whether there's a barrier or an obstacle to it? Well, I think in many ways we just don't believe what the scriptures teach. Uh, Sometimes we waver in the hard truths of the scriptures, and so we don't end up acting like the Lord does in an evangelistic encounter. Other times it's a theological problem. It's, it's a problem with how we view our own conversion. It's almost as if our own conversion in some ways, when we tell it or retell it, we don't talk about the hard thing that happened. Uh, but, but historically in American Protestantism and particularly con- contemporary evangelicalism, the way testimonies were given, it, it seems like sort of a hallmark version of it. There's only good news. It's almost as though we were more savable. God saw that, offered us the gospel, and in our good discernment, we chose the right thing and entered this happy club. I'm so thankful that our young people are getting a much more clear and robust theological understanding of the gospel so that when they get in the waters of baptism, you hear it, don't you? You hear what they were. You hear the barrier that kept them from the gospel. You hear the obstacle that was there and it's definable and it's clear. The scriptures have become the MRI of their heart and it's in their minds and the clear transition is made when they come to repentance. Sometimes we just have a a Pollyanna kind of view of conversion instead of thinking about the hard truths that must come first and reveal and expose the obstacle. You remember there was the lawyer in the 10th chapter of Luke, verse 25, who asked the same question, but his motive was to test Jesus. Here he came with the same question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? But his motive was exposed as wanting to test Jesus and catch him in some some wrong thing. And then this lawyer, this expert in the Old Testament law could then bring the hammer down and show that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. It's looked the same, sound the same, same question as the man here. Ill motives. The soil wasn't soft. You get to John chapter 2, Jesus goes up into the Temple Mount and it says there that many believed on his name. But you know what it says in John 2? Jesus was not accepting their profession of faith. He wasn't entrusting himself to them as their master because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew their profession. Many of them was just not genuine. Then there are those Jesus refers to in Matthew 7 where He says, on the day of judgment, they will say, we did all these things in your name. But he says, I I don't know who you are. I've never known you intimately because you're lawless ones. You, You never repented. You never had the grace of God transforming you. You never loved and hungered after righteousness. You're lawless. Depart from me. And then there was the seemingly genuine passion of Simon Magus in Acts 8 who believed and was baptized. But you know what? His real motive was to gain heaven by his spiritual preeminence. He even tried to pay for it and was rebuked. And then there were times when Jesus would put the cost of following him as bluntly as this, as we saw in the ninth chapter of Luke, verse 23. Deny yourself, take up your cross, which was a metaphor for dying to self. The cross was to be crucified to self, to actually lose your life in the most ignominious way. Deny yourself, take up your cross. There's the cost of discipleship. Are you willing to do that? Because he says, if you love other things more than me and you won't do that, if you love your life more than me or any other relationship in this life more than me, you're not truly my disciple. Jesus, again, took the crowd of interested, quote unquote, seekers and exposed the barrier, the obstacle. It's unmistakable that the gospel will cost you everything you hold dear in this life. And still, people, though filled with the anxiety and emptiness of their earthly pursuits, will still seek something from Jesus, but not on his terms, but on theirs. 
And so here you see this anxious one who has come and Jesus has to deal with him to expose that barrier. Notice he's anxious. Mark's gospel says he ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. This man is in a state of anxiety and desperation at some level. We know this from the text here because in verse 21, he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. So he boldly claims to be blameless in the treatment of others according to the law, yet he clearly has no assurance that he's getting in the kingdom. That's anxiety. Man, I've been an adherent to these things all my life, and I still need to know what is missing. He's anxious. Moreover, he's a leader of some prominence in the synagogue and he pushes past his fear of what others will think about such an important man kneeling before this rabbi, Jesus. He just comes and, and there's an anxious reverence here. He calls him good teacher. Most called Jesus by the respectful uh, greeting of rabbi. This guy adds the qualitative dynamic of goodness, which in the minds of the Jews meant that he was associated intimately with God. And so this guy is not just anxious, but he's coming with an air of, hey, look, I know that you're blessed by God, and I'm hoping you will have an answer because you are a spokesperson for God. That's why I call you good, and you are teaching divine things. You're a teacher of the good things given by God. And so you're worthy of the high respect given to those who spiritually lead. And, and I'm desperate hoping you will have the answer for why, even though I've obeyed the law faithfully, I'm still full of guilt and anxiety and a sense of hopelessness. That's what you have here. You have an anxious seeker, and the issue isn't whether his Seeking makes him the real deal because no one seeks after God truly, Romans 3. And in, if they're really seeking, they're being drawn by the grace of God and always results in salvation. Everyone else is a phony. Everyone else is never going to go past that line. Everyone else has terms by which they will come if God meets their terms. Jesus has to smoke it out, if you will. Still, this man is full of guilt, obviously. I've obeyed all the law, but something's missing. I don't have assurance. I don't have security. He's anxious, and that's because the more you live in the things that you think are going to make you acceptable to God, the more you realize there, there is no acceptance with God. These things aren't perfect. I end up shortchanged every time. And so a slow-growing but very certain sense of hopelessness begins to mount in an unbeliever. And so here you have what appears to many like the perfect scenario. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus begins in his answer with an exposing question. You see first the anxious seeker and now you have an exposing question. Verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you know how good was being used by this man who ran up to Jesus. It was the qualitative good, the divine good. It was a reference to an intimate relationship with God that would result in being his spokesperson, knowing him, knowing the answers that he gives, and how to apply them to people. In that sense, it's righteous good, pure good, divine good that Jesus is being associated with by this man. Now, Jesus gives an exposing question here because he's tilling the soil to get down to the obstacle or the barrier if there is one. He's getting down to it. And the first thing he reveals is the man's assumption. He just holds him to it by the words the man says. You call me good. That is to say, you're associating me intimately with God. And so you're saying, all we know about God, I'm a spokesperson for it. And if, if that's true, and we all know that's only true of God alone, you better think about what you're saying. 
It's almost like saying, look, I'm about to answer your question about what to inherit for eternal life. But based upon the way you greeted me, I want to show you something that you're going to have to think about. When it comes to the cost of salvation, you have to think about what you just labeled me. Because if you just labeled me that, you're not going to be able to reject it. It would be hypocrisy. We're going to find out whether you really mean it when you say, I'm of divine resources. You call me good. Yeah, that's right. You're intimately associating me with all that we know of God and God alone. But here's the challenging implication now that the man has said something that makes an assumption. The challenging implication is this. You will have to listen to the answer I give you as though you heard it directly from God. If you call me good and associate me intimately with the things of God, then the answer I give you, you will have to accept it as though you heard it directly from God or what you called me is empty, is an empty word. There's a barrier in you. That's how this becomes an exposing question. Why do you come to church if you don't believe what the Bible says? Why do you come to my Bible study if you're not interested in the wisdom that is found in the scriptures? This is why I am, I am desperate to continue to proclaim the danger of inviting known skeptics into the church as though they are the ones asking the most honest questions. It doesn't matter how philosophical their questions. A skeptic in the scriptures is not called a skeptic. He's called an unbeliever, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. This is what Jesus is doing with this, this young ruler. He is saying to him, why do you call me good? Why do you come and listen to me? Why do you kneel down before me? Because what I'm about to say, you're admitting already that you are going to say publicly, it's from God through me. We'll see. You better think about that. That's what he's saying. You want to come to the Bible study? You want to listen to the truth? Don't come here with a heart that is not soft, with all kinds of arguments already prepared. Don't do that like the lawyer in Luke 10. Don't do that to test God. It's already unbelief. You're dead in the water. There's no softness there. God doesn't, in his mercy, have to soften you. But if you come like that, you're already hardened. You're already throwing up 10 arguments against it. Why? Because you want your personal fulfillment. You want Christ to give you what you think you deserve. You, you have an entitlement already that you're a term you're demanding of God on this redemption. It's a very exposing question. So there's the scenario, and Jesus has begun to prepare him to look closely at the issue. You have an anxious seeker, and Jesus opens with an exposing question. What are you already admitting or presuming or assuming that is now going to trap you when I bring the truth? Let's think about that. We better consider it. That would have been important for a ruler that had a public persona. Very important, because here he is in front of the crowds pleading with Jesus to give him the key that so long has eluded him to unlock an assurance of eternal life. So then, after having asked him that exposing question, Jesus then points out an obvious theology. An obvious theology. In other words, the doctrine the man already says he believes. Notice verse 20. You know the commandments. It's right, he did know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He gives him the second half, or at least all but one, of the second half of the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know them. Here's an obvious theology. You know these things? This will be an easy thing to answer. It's just like he did with the lawyer in Luke 10 when he said, how does the scripture read to you? When it comes to the question of eternal life, you're an expert in Old Testament law. Surely you know. And of course, in Luke 10, the expert lawyer knew the answer to the question. And he popped it off. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely he knew. 
I love this tactic because in evangelism, you, you do at some point gain a lot of ground if you just ask them, what do you believe? What do you already believe? I know that you believe something because everybody lives by what they believe. And whether you've formulated it or codified it or you've articulated it, I want to know why you do what you do. When people start talking about what they already believe and the things that they're already convinced of, they are setting themselves up. Why is that important in evangelism? Because you're about to give them the truth and it isn't so much that you're gonna close the deal right there because that's God's business. You don't close any deal. This isn't Dale Carnegie evangelism. What you do is present the truth in light of what they've just said they believe. And you just go to sleep. You just go rest. Because as the truth is used by the Holy Spirit, Allah John 16, to convict of sin, their ideology, the beliefs they so boldly shared with you and so openly said to you, spoke to you, those things start to have the empty, hollow sense that they indeed are in reality. Against the truth, error goes nowhere. And if God's going to open blind eyes, he will do it by the comparison of someone's own boast and the scriptures as the, as the grid through which those boasts are challenged. And so Jesus does that. Here's the obvious theology. You know the commandments. There's no dispute here. Jesus knows he's not going to dispute these commandments. What I love, however, is that this list, being the second half of the Decalogue in how we respond to other people, is also missing one. It's given in Exodus 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet material things. Thou shalt not covet the earth. Thou shalt not love the things of the world or the things in the world. Thou shalt not love temporal things more than Christ, right? If you love father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life more than me, you can't be my disciple. All that tracks back to the standard that God has. Absolute allegiance, 100% willingness to lay it all on the altar for the eternal reward of knowing God in Christ. Jesus didn't include that one here. Why is that? <laughs> because that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate play at the end when truth confronts the man. And Jesus is going to do it through his experience. But first, Jesus gets the response you would expect if he gives the obvious theology the man would agree to. Notice verse 21. All these things... I've kept from my youth. All these things I've kept from my youth. My, my guess is, I suppose, that this isn't exegesis. It's not in the text. But my guess is that if Jesus had included, thou shalt not covet, this man would not have made such a boast. Maybe he would have. I don't know. But, but surely it would have been an empty one. Everyone knew him to be a very wealthy ruler. You say, well, is Wealth itself a sign of coveting? No. Depends on what you do with it and where your heart is with it. And God is not against wealth. It's a wonderful common grace of life to have resources that, if used for God's glory, absolutely amazingly operate for his purposes. But as Jesus will say later, and we'll get to it next time as we think about how to avoid this problem, Jesus does say it is very difficult, impossible in fact, for somebody who trusts in such things, covets such things, to enter the kingdom. There are ways that wealth works in the heart of people that has nothing to do with money itself. There are ways that wealth and covetousness work together in the hearts of sinners to keep them from the gospel that have nothing to do with money itself. It has everything to do with what you believe you gain from it and how much you trust in those things that you believe that you gain. And we'll talk about that extensively next time. 
But notice verse 21, all these things I've kept from my youth. So now we go, we go from an anxious seeker to this exposing question to an obvious theology and then a blind boast. It's a blind boast. It is absolutely blind. How do we know it's blind? Look for me, look with me for a moment at Romans 7, and I'll show you just how blind this boast is. Romans 7. Paul had been telling the Romans that, that though he was an adherent to the law, though he followed the law to a T, he was like the rich young ruler, keeping these things from his earliest days. Though that was true of him, the more he came to understand the law, the more his heart got crushed, his pride got shattered, the more he saw himself for who he really is. The blinders came off, Paul says. Notice verse seven. What are we gonna say then? Is the law sin? In other words, the law itself bound me in sin and the Jews in Rome might have thought Paul was saying that the law itself is a bad thing. Listen, the law is never a bad thing. Rules are never a bad thing from God. Standards from God, commands from God, they're never a bad thing. Any movement, any sanctification movement, any movement in a church or religious life that tells you that the standards or commands are something we ought to run from and that the law is a bad thing. If anybody makes a sharp distinction between law and grace that goes that far, it is error. The law of God is God's instrument to teach the heart its condition. Philippians 3, it is, uh, Galatians 3, it is the tutor that leads people to Christ to see their need. Paul illustrates that here. Notice verse 7. What, what are we going to say? Is the law a sinful thing? Absolutely absurd. May it never be. On the sharp contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law, because I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You say, really, Paul? Really, you didn't know that when you saw your neighbor, uh, what they had, and you got jealous of it, you didn't know that was sin? Oh, he might have thought, oh, that's human jealousy. But that's all he would have thought about it. He would have thought like we do. Uh, there are some lies that are really bad, and then there's some white lies that you can tell are no big deal. And then there's anger that's really bad and rage. And then there's some hatred in the heart that, eh, that's, that's understandable. That person deserves some hatred. Right? Oh, there's some, some immorality that's really bad, but that stuff that goes on in the mind and heart, eh, yeah, not that big a deal. Paul, before he saw the law for what it was and tried to obey it, there's a coveting that's really bad. It's, it's, it's what happens when somebody disobeys the law outright, willfully, deliberately. But coveting little things in your, in your heart is no big deal. Then he started to read the law. And the law basically said, in such immovable terms, beloved, you shall not covet. And the law has no flexibility in it. In the Old Testament, there was case law. Sometimes you'll hear the word casuistic. It just means case law. In other words, all through the, the law of God in the first five books of the Bible, when they were mapping out Israel and what they needed to do as a nation, there was case law. You know, if this happens, then you apply the law this way. If this happens, you apply it this way. But then there is just blunt law, we'll call it. The big word is apodictic, but it's you shall not kind of laws. You will not ever. And when Paul read that the law said you shall not ever covet or you are in violation of the law and therefore worthy of condemnation, he said that when the law hit his sinful heart, verse 8, it produced in him coveting of every kind. Two things happened when he heard the rule of God that you should never covet. Number one, I realize I'm coveting a lot more than I think. And secondly, I want to covet the moment I hear it. The moment I hear the law of God, I want to covet all the more. Why? Because of sin within us. Tell me a rule and I'll defy it. Tell me to stay off the grass and I'll step on it. It is our sin nature within us to hate a command like that. 
And Paul said it produced in him coveting of every kind. And, and notice he said it, this sin, verse 11, took opportunity through the commandment and deceived him and through it, it killed him. That is to say it destroyed his spiritual life. He could not keep the law. The law had its effect on him. It showed him the shattered nature of his own sin. It showed him that. The rich, young leader said, oh, I've kept all these things from my youth. Well, then, <laughs> you're not getting it. You are clueless. You are blind in your boast. Because if you have tried to keep the law from your youth up and you can't see what Paul saw in one command about coveting, you are truly as blind as they come. The law is to show you the standard and show that you never meet it, no matter how many times you try. That's why we, when we train our children, we give them the whole counsel of God. Here's God's standard. Here's his holiness. This whole idea of giving them only the grace of the gospel, you can't understand the grace of the gospel until you know your need. You have to give your kids the standard of righteousness that God commands. You have to. Of course you move from that in their shattered little hearts to the hope that's in Jesus. Absolutely he saves. And he saves by faith alone. Through his grace and his mercy. And it's freely given because Christ has paid the cost. And you must come. But don't imagine that you can come easily or on your own terms. You come on his terms which will cost you everything in your tiny little heart. It'll cost you yourself What a blind boast this guy makes. Look at Philippians 3 for the attitude that he should have had. You want to know what happened to Paul when he saw it? Philippians 3. I love this. He said at the end of verse 3 of Philippians 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if someone has a mind to put their confidence in their own works, I far more because I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And when it came to the law, man, I was a proven and official Pharisee. As to the passion of the law, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, you couldn't pick on my life. I kept the... The law in all those externals meticulously. But then notice what he says. Well, whatever things were the things I had confidence in, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, and I count more than that all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all these things. And I count them but rubbish, waste, so that I may gain Christ and I'll be found in him. It isn't a righteousness derived from the law of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. It comes from God on the basis of faith so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And he later says, I, I haven't already obtained it completely, but I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus because I've been redeemed from that foolish boast that I was blind to. When the law softens nothing in a person, it's because they lack integrity and humility. They lack honesty and they lack humility. You say, what do you mean? They're not being honest about what the truth is of their life. They're hidden and masking it, but deep down the hopelessness and emptiness are climbing up and they, they are gonna suppress it in further unrighteousness just to shut it out, but they're not being honest about that. Of course they're restless. Of course they feel guilty. I don't really care if an unbeliever looks at me with a smile on their face and said, I'm fine. I know deep down, no, you're not. But your conscience is certainly seared as you've suppressed the truth. There's an angst and a hopelessness in you, and I'm here to show you that you can have that guilt relieved. And then they're, they're not humble because they can hear the standard of God and if they're religious, make some boast about having already been acceptable to God by the way that they live. 
not needing Christ now. If they're not religious, they're certainly full of the, their own desire to be the captain of their own soul. So back to Luke 18. Jesus heard his blind boast. So if you're marking down textual notes, you have an anxious seeker, and then you have the exposing question, an obvious theology, a blind boast, and finally the obstacle revealed. When Jesus heard his boast, he said to him, one thing you still lack, (laughs) sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Whoa, (laughs) what is that about? Well, it isn't about philanthropy. God has no problem with the wealth that he gives to his people. Lots of people in the scriptures were wealthy from from some of the kings of Israel to the, to the rank and file in Israel, all the way into uh, to the way that people in the New Testament lived who came to Christ, and he never took away their wealth. You see that all in the early church at times, people sacrificing great amounts of wealth that they had for the sake of some need of somebody else, but they, they nonetheless had it. They were never told to sell all those things. Some have tried to make this verse a socialistic verse, but that's not the issue here at all. And notice what the issue is. You can tell by the contrast. Sell all you possess, distribute it to the poor. He doesn't then say, and you'll have eternal life. Clearly, this isn't a work. It's not philanthropy unto salvation. Or he would have said right then, you'll have eternal life if you do that. No, what did he say? You'll have treasure in heaven. In other words, this is about coveting temporal things and loving the things here instead of where your affections ought to be, and that is upon eternal things and matters of the soul and what is in glory in the future. And we also know Jesus says it's on my terms because notice the next thing he says, you come and you follow me. Don't follow your future, your career, those other things. Those things serve me. You follow what I call you to do. For this man, Jesus is now pointing out and revealing the obstacle. You are a coveter. You love earthly things and you found your security in those things and it is keeping you from eternal life. Not the things themselves, but your trust in them. It's the same obstacle for people who don't have things but covet them. James 1, 9 to 11 says a rich man should glory when, it's, when there's nothing in his resources that he can trust and the poor man should glory in the fact that he has none to tempt him to trust. Was he an honest seeker? Verse 23. When he heard these things. He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. (laughs) Oh, okay, here we go, there it is. He became very sad when he heard the terms. Not because, you notice he didn't say, oh, is that what your movement is? Is this a socialist movement? It's a distribution of wealth movement? He didn't have any of that conclusion. His conclusion was, you mean to tell me that I've got to follow you and lay all that I've brought into my life as my security on the altar? No thanks. What a grief. I've kept all these things all my life meticulously, and now you're telling me that the one thing I need is to obey the command not to covet and not find security here in this life and attach myself to those things. No thanks, because that's a grief to me. You're asking me to give up all my earthly comfort. I've built a life on it. I love it. It's brought me security. It has opened up worlds to me that have fulfilled my life. You're telling me to follow you, and it might mean that all that stuff goes away? You're telling me to lay that on the altar? Not going to happen. Did you know that uh, the synoptics say in the other accounts that in Mark's gospel it says, Jesus looked at him. And he felt compassion for him. 
In fact, one of the translations says he has a love for him. And the patience of Almighty God to have a love for such a blind, boastful unbeliever who won't let go of the security of this life. Eternal life, it's a cost too high for some. Jesus will go on to give the way out of it, the perspective out of it. And that'll be for next time. Let's bow. Lord, thank you for saving us despite the petty earthly bondage we were in, cheap satisfactions. Thank you for softening the soil of our hearts. If we know and love you, we know that's what you did. But how often we, even as believers, having come to you, we know the real reward, we know the real standard, we know the truth, and yet we hang on to things here as if there was some security and comfort in them. We don't use them for you. We don't use our gifts and talents for you. We don't use even our fiscal resources for you and our material gain. We don't give you thanks for it because we believe it's our comfort here, that it's our fulfillment here. And therefore, we lose our testimony and the strength of our usefulness when we do that. Please forgive us. Help us to see in this study what you're going to help us understand about the danger and lure of the comforts here. You give them to us to use for you, not to find some ultimate security in them. And Lord, help us to help our unbelieving friends and family who, who don't see their foolishness in attaching themselves to things in this life. The growing hopelessness in them is in desperate need of the truth on your terms. And so use us as instruments in their lives. May we be as compassionate and loving as you were to this, this young fool who was trading it all for a mess of pottage. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes. Oh, how blessed and graced we are to see it. For on judgment day it will be too late. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Strengthen us in these truths. We pray in your holy name. Amen.